This is Sound Heights Records Podcast, Session 14, and the song lyric of the day is by Damon Albert. I had a dream that you were leaving. It's hard to be a lover when the TV's on and nothing is in your eyes. I had a dream that you were leaving, where every atom falling in the universe is passing through our minds. Welcome to the Sound Heights Records Podcast. Harmonizing life and music, growing as an artist, improving as a person, gaining insight and inspiration, conversations with world-class musicians. Welcome to Sound Heights Records. This is Yisrael Aryeh. Hope everyone's doing very fine. Today's special guest, Aaron Navizi, is a, a producer, engineer, co-founder of the Bunker Studio, which is one of New York's top studios. It's an incredible array of rooms. And I first met Aaron back in well, we got to clear up the dates. It was, I guess, back in 2012, very early 2012. Um, we were setting out to make the first Brooklyn Jazz Warriors record with Brian Stoltz. And I went around Brooklyn looking at different studios. I knew there were a number of, of great studios. But as soon as I stepped into the bunker and met Aaron, um, and I immediately felt right at home, like this was a great place to record. And we ended up recording the two albums in Service of the King and then later Kadera over there, uh, both incredible experiences. And the, besides the, the incredible rooms and the way it was acoustically designed in this, this very unique way, uh, beautiful aesthetically and sonically, the main reason we chose the bunker was because of Aaron himself and the general friendly vibe of the studio. I've had a number of experiences at different studios where the engineers and the producers that worked out of the studios kind of created a toxic atmosphere. Unfortunately, it seems pretty common, partly because of the insular nature of the studios and the big fish in a small pond effect. But regardless, I felt differently than that at the bunker and with Aaron and with John Davis, his uh, partner, who he co-founded the bunker with. Um, who I haven't worked with as much, but but certainly was a presence. And um, the two of them really showed me be, beyond now this friendly atmosphere, this this very artistic vibe of the place, but these incredible skills. And not only do they have incredible equipment, but they, they know how to use it. And just an openness and a down-to-earth way of approaching uh, making music and recording. Since then, having developed our own studio here, Sound Heights Records, an ability just to come in every day, which is really great, just to uh, press a button and, and put down ideas and record. And obviously, the sensing the gap between where my skills started out and what I'd experienced at the bunker, but nevertheless, learning, improving, 
over the course of time. And actually, after, you know, about two years of collecting material, um, very recently, in connection with this interview, I also scheduled some time with Aaron to sit down and, and do some mixing. A really invaluable experience to get his perspective, his really seasoned ears, and hearing things in his incredibly built mixing room to improve how I do things at Sound Hedge Records in terms of tracking, in terms of my own mixing, in terms of how to conceive of the tracks themselves. To be able to sit with Aaron now over five years after I'd last worked with him and when back then I was primarily paying attention to the music, though I was noticing things about uh, mic placement and we mixed together, but it was mostly the musical aspect of things that I was focused on. This time I was really able to ask questions and uh, discuss with him the technical aspects of things. It was really um, a really wonderful learning experience and this part of this continued education of being a musician slash recording engineer on how to best work and present one's own work, as well as how to apply those skills in work with others. And so there's no one better than Aaron to, to share that. I mean, he's worked with so many amazing musicians, Danger Mouse, all the guys from The Roots, Black Thought and Questlove, The Black Keys, Charlie Hunter, Wayne Krantz. And that's really just a small portion of the people he's worked with. Um, he creates his own music. He's actually a really accomplished guitar player. And he also is a modular synthesizer enthusiast. I've included samples of both of those as part of the incidental music of this session. There's really a lot to learn from our conversation. I know I learned a lot. Um, first, once again, I want to thank our Patreon supporters. These episodes are being made possible by their support. If you've been enjoying these podcast sessions and or the musical releases that we're regularly putting out, please consider going over to patreon.com slash soundheightsrecords and showing a little love. You can also go over to soundheightsrecords.com slash rewards and check out all the tracks that you'll be able to access only by being a Patreon supporter. So lean back and enjoy our conversation with Aaron Navitz. super busy pretty busy yeah yeah <laughs> um so I, I was i'm very interested to speak to you because we've i mean we've spoken we've worked together some and and um but never there's never time yeah <laughs> during exactly. the course of making a record engineering yeah, yeah and also you don't want to waste i mean i don't want to waste your time yeah. when you're not on the clock yes when you're on the clock i don't want to waste my exactly <laughs> yeah, schmoozing you, yeah so i'm really happy to be able to uh, i mean probably I, and i can't imagine that i, I imagine that might be common for you with a lot of artists that you encounter that you might not spend a lot of time getting very personal obviously besides the people you're already close with but yeah. like um yeah you, i mean you you do get to know people over the 
the period of making records or making, you know, it depends on how much time you spend with people, but mm -hmm. yeah, there's, you do the, the five minute lunch conversation and you learn something about somebody and then you maybe learn a little bit more about them next time or, uh, you know, brief conversation in the control room while you're waiting for a, you know, drama to set up or whatever right. it is. Yeah. Yeah. But it's always pretty, pretty quick. Usually. Right. Yeah. So I don't know how many, how often you've gotten a chance to kind of tell your story and your journey. I mean, for me, it's fascinating because, you know, I just encountered you kind of emerging fully formed with this incredible studio. Now it's even more <laughs> incredible. <clears throat> but obviously you, you know, you've some, something, I mean, besides the fact that it's an incredible um, studio itself mm -hmm. and the accomplishment of all the recordings that you do and all the music that you're involved with, it's also just that I was amazed by how much motivation it must <laughs> must take i mean besides capital yeah. but just motivation to to learn everything to acquire everything to you know it's it's like it's just mind-blowing to me you someone someone who has started my own studio in a much more modest fashion acquiring gear and, mm -hmm. and gaining skills and forming relationships and that whole thing it's 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 whole world in itself so i just yeah. if you don't mind just going like it's starting at the beginning from where you just kind of unpack if I can. <laughs> no, so just from getting yeah. your earliest musical influences. I, I you're from New Zealand. I am. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I didn't start playing music until relatively late for for most people who become professional musicians. I mean, I didn't really start until I was in high school, and sort of got into playing guitar and was really obsessed with the '80s guitar rock bands like you know, Motley Crue and Guns N' Roses and. Like that's the stuff that got me going on music, um, and so I was super obsessed with guitar and would you know do this things that teenagers do where you like come home every night and play for hours and you know so that that got me going on music and uh, I think that obsessive side of music sort of stayed with me um, and basically the thing that got me into a more professional or heading more towards professionally playing music was uh hearing some jazz for the first time late in high school and live or, or? no I, I just on like a, a radio show um in my second to last year at high school um and i went to the music teacher who was this really awesome lady who from canada who'd sort of come to our school and brought like kind of a fresh life to the music department and i asked her you know have you heard of oscar peterson and she was like, of course. And I was like, well, this stuff's amazing. And she's like, well, I have some records. I'll bring you some records tomorrow. And she brought me some vinyl records of Oscar Peterson. I think the two records were Night Train and Live at Montreux. And those are some pretty classic Oscar Peterson mm -hmm. records. And as like a shredder guitar player, I was just blown away by the chops and what was going on. And I think on the um, Live at Montreux record too, it was Joe Pass playing guitar. Mm -hmm. And I was just blown away by the fact that guitar player could play that many notes without distortion, you know, and that cleanly and, and articulately. So that really like blew me away. And so then I got into jazz and basically after high school, I went and did like an introductory program for jazz and really got obsessed with that and started practicing a lot more and then went through like, you know, a, a jazz school in New Zealand playing as, you know, as a, as a player. Um, and then, so that's what got me really into jazz. And then I played professionally back home for three or four years. And in that time, I realized that 
you know, I got to play with a lot of the best players in town and I was, you know, kind of reaching the peak of where I could go professionally there. And so then I started looking elsewhere and that's why I thought of coming to New York. I mean, same time, which, which uh, city in... I'm from Auckland. Auckland. So yeah, I, I went to, to school in Wellington. I studied with some great people there and met a lot of great people and players. And then I moved back to Auckland and played there for, you know, like I said, three or four years. And it was great. You know, I got to play with like all the, the you know, really cool people in town. And at that point as well, there was a really cool live music scene in Auckland. So I could play like five nights a week. What is it? I mean, what's the scene like there? It's it's uh... now it's very different from mm -hmm. when I was there. There was like this really um, vibrant live music scene in a, in a certain part of the city that, you know, there was one venue that had live music three or four nights a week. So I was playing there a lot with different bands. And then there was another place that was like weekends, like super late night, like acid jazz. Hmm. Like that was sort of still on the scene in like the, in the 90s. Um, so I got I got to play like a bunch of. I was playing differently in the jazz world, mostly, you know, in the wedding day. There was an audience for yeah, people would live come out. jazz there? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There was, you know, and yeah. again, like, I, like all those venues sort of closed and the scene mm -hmm. changed. Um, and there's a different, there's a big, really strong live music scene in New Zealand now, but that side of things, I think, changed a lot. I was just lucky to come up at that time mm. when I could play a lot and make a living from playing um, and play with a lot of people and, you know, get the experience of, of playing a lot of live music. So that was great. Um, but a friend of mine came to New York and came back with a pamphlet for the new school um, in Manhattan. And they had it, you know, the, the faculty was amazing. I looked at that and I was like, I want to go there. So um, I had the opportunity to come to the States with a big band I was playing with. I came out here and I came to New York for like three days and I was just just immediately like mm -hmm. taken with what was going on here and the vibe of the city and you know it's that thing of people who are not from new york you know it's quite a romantic attachment to the city right um so i came out and uh went to school at the new school and just was really taking being a jazz guitar player very seriously for a while and you know graduated from the new school and um that was kind of the path to where I am now um, in terms of the at the time and I think probably still is the new school um, every student ensemble would get to record once a semester and then also there were concerts that were recorded and my friend um, Jason Sarubi was running the recording side of things mm -hmm. and he was always looking for help and so at one point he was like uh, I need somebody to record a session on Sunday or whatever it was. And I was like, well, I need the money. Um, I'll totally do it. And so he uh, just gave me like a, you know, 20 minute tutorial on how to, how to, you know, run a Mackie console and record to DAT and where to put the mics. And, you know, very, he very quickly showed me the, the ropes. And, um, so it was really a trial by fire. That was the first time you didn't grow up with like four tracks? I or... was, yeah, in high school I was four tracking for sure, yeah. But, you know, when I got into the the jazz thing, I definitely had let go of any of the technical sides. And I was just like, I'm playing guitar. But the four track was a thing of like recording my high school bands and making demo tapes and all that stuff. Um, and it was really fun. I love the four track thing. But yeah, so I definitely was pretty obsessed with that thing as well. I had like a, you know, one of those cassette tape recorders that has the two cassettes and mm -hmm. I would like 
play one side and then overdub guitar, like totally like, you know, low tech. Yeah. Um, I definitely came up from the pre-computer recording, but not even like, you know, reel to reel. It was just four track tape right. and cassette tape. Um, uh, yeah, so that's kind of what got me into recording was working at the New School recording student ensembles. And then we also had, a um, through my business partner, John Davis, um, I met um, this guy, uh, John Blackford, who's like this synthesizer, um, obsessive, great guy. And he had this crazy home studio with like a wall of modular synths and all these other <coughs> synths. And he also had this amazing recording setup. So around about the same time uh, as that, you know, uh, as like working at the new school, I started like hanging out with J that John Blackford's place and you know, record like playing some guitar on some tracks for him and sort of learning a little bit about how to run his recording system. And then also John uh, Davis was sort of really obsessed with uh, electronic music and he was like making like kind of square pusher FX twin tracks at home on Logic. So he kind of like got me into Logic as well. So it's like a bunch of things started happening around the same time. How did you meet John? John was at the new school. Um, he's, he's a bass player and he's playing upright bass. And we started playing in various bands together just around the city. Um, and so we kind of just formed a friendship pretty quickly. Like we were in this, a lot of the same music and um, we were kind of, we just kind of bonded over, you know, obviously just music nerd, nerd them mm -hmm. basically. Um, so yeah, he was definitely one of the, the, the pathways into the recording thing for me. And, and then, but so, at what point did it? So you're obsessed with playing guitar. Yeah, I heard your the album you did with Chris White. That was <laughs> yeah. in, in New Zealand. Yeah, that was so long ago. Yeah, that was in, that was before you came to New School. Yeah, that would have been about '97, I think. So you came to New yeah. School like '98. Yeah, I came to New School '98. Okay, that's yeah. that's some great, really great playing. On there. <laughs> Thank you. It's like <laughs> it I had no idea, you know, because I've heard other stuff you've done. Yeah, it's much more subdued yeah. in terms of the the chops yeah that was the only thing that i that i found of you that that really shows a lot yeah. of and that was before you even started to study yeah in, uh, yeah i was just playing music. so much and yeah i was just really into that style of playing and and you yeah. had a hand in in composing those those tunes also yeah it was a co-led band chris That's and i cool. were you know collaborators and had a band and we did did that record just before I left, and I think it didn't. I think it even came out after I left. I think Chris handled it, and I came to the New York. So how? So tell me that that process of where you're focused on playing. Uh -huh. you're, you're upset, as you said. You're like passionate about the guitar, and then it shifts over. Because I can imagine yeah. you're not. I mean, I'm, I know you still play guitar. You still yeah. play, but it, it's shifted at some certain point where that that wasn't the, the central focus anymore. Yeah. Uh, I think it was just, um, I think there's a couple of things really is, uh, number one, just getting out of school and just, you know, realizing that as much as I loved playing jazz, there were so many people who were just so much better at it than me <laughs> that I, and I wasn't obsessed about it. Like kind of school just kind of cured me of my obsession of playing jazz guitar. I was like, there's a world of guitar players who are better at playing guitar than me. I was like, I, I kind of was just like, let them do that because that's what they really want to do. And there's other things I'm more interested in. And at that point, I was getting back into playing in rock bands as well. So I was playing bass in a bunch of bands and I was playing guitar in some bands. And so I kind of got less, I was just less into the jazz thing and more into other like more 
songy music. Um, you know, so I think that was part of it. And so then, you know, I started recording the bands I was working with. I started recording bands like we, I could get access to the recording facilities at the new school. Mm. Um, so I would record like student, student like demos basically and different people had like different band stuff. So I started to get more into the band world um, rather than the jazz thing. And um, around that time, John and I moved into an apartment um, with another friend of ours um, that was big enough that we could start recording in the apartment. Um, so that gave us the opportunity to like sort of set up little home studios and we started like doing demos at the apartment as well. Um, so it was just very natural. Yeah. Like we were just, you know, oh, we record our own band. Oh, well somebody, we started recording at the new school, but we can finish the record at home. Or I can just like mix a record on my iMac and Logic or, you know, whatever it is. It's just like, oh, there's a little bit of work and maybe we'll charge people like 15 bucks an hour mm -hmm. for our time um, and be able to like make a record with somebody, uh, you know, or make records with bands that we're playing in. And just we just kind of got into really got into that process. And it was very collaborative with, with, with John in a lot of ways. Um, and so it just became like more and more of that. And... I started doing live sound at a jazz club in the city called Jazz Standard. So I kind of just was making my living more and more from engineering and less from playing. Um, and, you know, I'd do gigs and get paid for it, you know, playing with various people. But more and more, like, just regular income was running sound and doing, producing records and engineering records and mixing records. Uh, and so that, and I just really liked it as mm -hmm. well. And like I just wasn't really that at that point. I was like, well, this is more fun for me than schlepping my amp on the subway for a tip gig, you know, right. in the in the West Village or doing a fifty dollar gig. Um, even though it was super fun, and I still continue to do some of it. It just became less and less of that, and more and more, uh, you know, engineering stuff. So at a certain point, you obviously we're collecting besides you're collecting skills you're, yeah. i mean you're teaching yourself essentially learning with john and learning yeah. from so you didn't uh, did you ever apprentice with um a studio like this at any point no yeah. no i mean i didn't i actually did i didn't really have the opportunity to do that because i had to make a living you know mm -hmm. a lot of people do that when they're like just out of school and maybe they have like some support from their parents or they have a you know they they can work a you know, a gig, wait, waitering or what, whatever it is. I just, I was a little too old for that mm -hmm. when I got into this stuff. So I just kind of had to keep on just making a living. And so I just did it. You know, I just, I just learned by doing. And I think I learned a lot from doing live sound. I learned a lot from working at the new school with students and just recording a ton of people really quickly, like no time to set up, get it happening. Uh, change over from like a Latin band to a big band to a vocal quartet for a concert, you know, like doing stuff really fast mm -hmm. is something I learned. And also just learning how to, like, especially with just learning how to put mics on acoustic instruments and try to try to get it sounding like that instrument really quickly. Right. You know, and the same thing with doing it at, at doing live sound at the standards. I think a big part of what I learned was just making people comfortable really quickly, not messing with them. You know, like kind of almost like a purist approach of just yeah. like, let's record what's there. Um, 
Uh, so for definitely from the side of recording that I do with acoustic music, I, I think you know hearing bands play live on a stage, knowing what that sounds like, being able to make them sound good in a room, and then translating that experience mm. to a recording, just be like, oh well, you know, it it should be simple. Right. Like it doesn't have to be complicated to record things. You don't have to use a billion mics. It's more just like. Can you capture it? Does it sound good? Does it interact with the other instruments the way that it does on a gig? Mm -hmm. um, does it sound natural? Um, you know, for for an acoustic type music like jazz or chamber music or whatever, then that's really the goal. Um, and so that's that was the live sound thing definitely helped me a lot with that. And then it was just like for rock records and other types of music, it was just like listening to records and. Being like, how do I get that sound? And, you know, talking with friends, you know, just nerding out about stuff mm -hmm. again is like, oh, that's, that sounds like some crazy space echo feeding back on, you know, on that record, or oh, man, the drums are really distorted on that. You know, what do you think they're doing? Or, you know, wow, why is that kick drum so punchy? You know, is it the room mics or is it the close mics or what do you think is going on here? And, um, you know, just. Talking about music and listening to music with people is probably the best way to learn. Well, it sounds like your, your trajectory, there's a lot of room to make mistakes because you, were, you weren't charging very much in the beginning. Yeah, exactly. You were doing a lot of free sessions yeah. with the students. Yeah. Um, how steep was the learning curve? I mean, did you at any point feel that um, I, my skills at, at an earlier stage can't match up to... Where I'm at to, now. Uh, well, yeah. certainly where you are now. Yeah. That's what, you know, I'm, I'm thinking in that, in that way because yeah. I've been engineering my own recordings. Yeah. And, and I've realized that, and I don't have, even have that kind of experience of working with tons of students. I just work with mostly my own music and, and, and people who come to, you know, I, it's much lower uh, quantity of, yeah, yeah. <laughs> of experience. But the idea of, and there's one of the reasons that I'm actually coming to you for a mixing session tomorrow is to, to help uh, bridge that gap a little bit to appreciate, well, I'm, here I am with... Um, what feel what I'm what's clearly rudimentary skills even more not, not um, having a clue what I what I don't know there's so yeah. much that I don't know in terms of that side of things that um, it's almost it's it, it sometimes can feel intimidating I mean my approach is just to well I'm gonna ignore that and march forward with it yeah. but it seems like did that ever something you confronted that it felt because it's such I mean there are, there is an attitude among engineers that I've encountered that's like you know nothing, you know, yeah. and you you and everything you do is is junk, and this is and this is like the right way to do it. And did you encounter that a lot, or you, you didn't you you ignore it, or it was just you were with such friends and supportive uh, people you worked with, it didn't really come up that much. Well, I I think that I mean there's definitely like things that I I can think of, I can point to that were like learning mistakes that I'm like, oh yeah, that was right. We sh I should have been doing it this way or I, I you know, should have, you know, maybe gone a little more uh, traditional with what I was doing. I mean, I you know, I think you choose, okay, let's put it this way. I think you choose the times to experiment and the smart thing to do is to experiment on things that mm -hmm. uh, don't, aren't, somebody isn't paying you for basically or you know as long as you have your bases covered like i definitely like can think of like making some records with bands that i worked with that 
you know, I had a concept and I was trying something out, but maybe it didn't work. Mm. You know, maybe I like missed the boat on like miking the drums. Like, I was like, oh, let me just put this mic on the hi-hat and being like, you know, when it comes to later to production, I'm like, why did I do that? That was so stupid. Doesn't work. I really missing like, you know, instead of putting a copper phone on the hi-hat, I should have just put that maybe with something else. Or, you know, I remember like doing a record with another band and being like, oh, I really want like super dry, like Fleetwood Mac drum sounds. And then like putting like a EV635 dynamic mic for overheads and then realizing later, oh, I've got no high end. Hmm. Like that was kind of a mistake. And if I actually listen to those records, the way they actually sound, there is high end on the drums. It's just, you know, the way it's played and blah, blah, blah. So I definitely can point out a bunch of mistakes that I made early on that I wish I had, um, you know, done it differently, but you just store that away for later. Um, and most of the time, you know, you can figure out ways around it. And you also learn more from problem solving a lot of the time mm -hmm. than you do from getting things right. Right. Which is, again, one of my, my ideas in, in coming to you with tracks that I've engineered, which yeah. on one hand, I, at first I actually sent them to Scott Hall. Mm. <laughs> it was not a pretty... Oh, he, did, he was like, no, you got some more work to do? Yeah. Oh, cool. But, but, it, but I'm, I was happy to... I, I knew that that would, would, what would happen. Yeah. But that's the only way, like you're saying, you were, you were at a point where you had to make a living. You, you, didn't have, you couldn't afford to become an intern and yeah. sleep on the floor in, your in a studio. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, for me, I'm even like, yeah. <laughs> at the stage I'm learning, it's like I have you know, kids to support. Exactly. <laughs> so it's like yeah. I take whatever I can in terms of the, the continuing education yeah. and in terms of, of uh, getting that feedback. Like, okay, yeah, I know there are mistakes here. <laughs> But I'm, I'm, more, I'm actually more interested in what mistakes I don't know. Yeah, you know, yeah, that exactly. I, that I could be told. Yeah. Um, but at what point did you feel like your recordings could match up to any professional recordings out there? Like, at what point did you feel like you, you were you had the confidence to put something out there and say this is, you know, this could be distributed anywhere and it would stand up with any other professional recordings? Um, I don't know if I ever feel that way. <laughs> I mean, you know, you know that like sometimes you make a record and you're like, yeah, it sounds really good. You know, I'm really happy with this. Um, and even now, sometimes I work on records where there's like limitations to maybe the tracking or the performances that, you know, I'll mix something and I'll be like, hey, I just did the best I could with what I, with what I had to work with. Um, but, um, you know, then you hear back from people who maybe you have listened to the records and they're like, I love the way that sounds. Mm -hmm. You're like, oh man, that was you know, a real struggle to get that sounding anywhere near I would be happy with. So right. it's always like a graduation. There's a subjective Yeah, I mean, but I think, you know, talking about mastering engineers, I think John and I were really lucky early on to meet um, a, a mastering engineer called Alan Tucker, who um, has done like so many incredible um, records. He did like a ton of stuff for... Um, uh, John Zorn's label, Sadiq. Um, he's done, like, he did a ton of reissues for, like, Verve. He did, like, you know, a bunch of Coltrane records. And, like, he's done, like, his discography is mm -hmm. incredible. Um, and early on, we just met him because he needed help cleaning out his storage space. And we went over there, and we just got on with him great. And he was so cool and helpful. And so, you know, we started using him for mastering our stuff that we were doing at home in our home studio. And he would just give us great feedback. Be like, oh, yeah, you guys like to pan stuff really wide. 
I go, ah, okay, well, maybe I should think about that next time I'm right. mixing. Or, you know, he would just, yeah, like, well, he'd be great. like, oh, the low end yeah. is, you know, you know, or like, you know, you just make comments. Um, and not in a, like, a kind of a, like, in a very constructive way. We'd always yeah. be like, you know, Alan, what do you think? And he would tell us. Um, so I think that's, that's, great. that's one great of the most powerful yeah. um, tools as a, as, a, as a learning, progressing person in anything, but obviously in engineering is what we're talking about, is just having those trusted ears that you can um, reference. And, you know, even like one little comment will make a huge difference. Yeah. Um, and it happens every day to me still. You know, it's not like I know everything I want to know about engineering. I, you know, I'm far from it. Um, you know, and I can think of things that people told me yesterday that are influencing what I'm doing today because I feel like I learned you know, it's a game changer. I, th I think one of the things that I, d I can point to just uh, in the last week, uh, we have a uh, mastering engineer, Alex Turk, who's part of our team now at the bunker. And, you know, I have a record that I knew was going to him and I was like talking about it. I was like, oh man, you know, this kick drum is really tough on this record. I'm having a really hard time. Like it was tracked somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And I was like, you know, definitely is not the way I would have recorded it. Drummer is great, you know, it's not speaking the way I wanted. And he was like, well, you know, I, I use multi-band compression a lot when I'm mm -hmm. mastering, you know, try, you know, just squashing it at 60 hertz and see what happens. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I tried it and I was like, oh yeah, well, you know, was, this is cool, I can do this and this. And then I was like, oh, this multi-band compression thing, you know, I always forget about it. Let me try it, and, you know, the next two days later, I was mixing a pop thing. I was like, well, this vocal is a little boxy. I was like, oh, that's right, you know, multi-band compression. Well, it sort of worked on the kick drum on that, and I actually used it on some guitars as well. Um, so let me try it on the vocal. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so it's just like little comments like that can totally change yeah. or open up a whole yeah. world of possibilities. Um, so, you know, it's just, it's just those conversations you have with people, I think, are some of the most important things. You know, mastering engineers are probably your greatest resource as a mixing engineer. Right. And mixing engineers are probably your greatest resource as a tracking right, engineer. Right, right. Um, and engineers might be a really good resource for you as a player right. because they know what it's supposed to sound like. And sometimes, you know, musicians, if they ask the right question from an engineer, can, you know, really improve their sound. Right. Um, you know, because, you know, you know, don't always know how it's going to translate of microphones or on, on speakers on a record. You know, I mean, and obviously musicians are the engineer's greatest resource right? <laughs> because you can learn so much from asking a musician, where do you usually like the mic on your instrument? Mm -hmm. Like if there's anything I'm not sure about on a, uh, on an instrument, like, you know, somebody brings in some, you know, instrument I don't record on, on a regular basis, I'm going to ask them mm -hmm. what they usually do and what they usually like because they probably know. Right. If they're a professional of being in the studio. Yeah, yeah, like, you know, I had uh, some great Latin percussion players in, on a salsa record this week. And, you know, the, the guiro player, or the, 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 the bongo player is playing guiro on a, on a track. And the producer was like, oh, that guiro sounds a little thin. Mm -hmm. So I went out and I said to the guy playing guiro, I was like, oh, the mic's a little high. Where do you usually like it? And mm -hmm. he sort of pointed and we lowered it down and then right. there wasn't a problem with the guiro sound. Yeah. So, you know, I think also just being open to the people who do it, you know, they do it every day as well. 
Yeah. You know, they know as much as we do in certain ways. And listen, my wife introduced me to like the world of, of uh, Fania and, and oh, yeah. Salsa. Those are so well recorded. Some amazing records. I mean, it's huge bands. Yeah. Like how did they, it sounds so good, I don't, yeah. you know. Um, yeah, and that's like classic New York sound as well. Yeah. A lot of that stuff is like, a lot of that stuff is recorded in New York. And like, it's, it's like another classic genre of recording yeah. that if you don't know about or you don't interact with it, it's a whole world on its own. I mean, that whole world, there's a world of rhythm to understand. There's a world of, you know, harmony to understand. There's a world of melody to understand. There's a world of um, tone, you know, like in the recording side. So whenever I get to do a record in, in that world, I'm always really excited because it's just, a, it's, I learn so much yeah. about that style of music and it's really fun. I love doing salsa records and I, I've done a few and it's always, it's, it's not very often, but when it comes through, I'm, I'm like, yes, this is cool, yeah. <laughs> um, so how, how did, okay, so let me go back a little bit. Yeah. So, cause you, cause, you, cause you were recording out of your apartment. Yeah. So then, um, at what point did that translate to like I'm gonna we're gonna, we're gonna get this giant industrial space oh. and build it out and hire Roger Vase? And, yeah. Anyway, I read I read the you read his the, book. The, well, most of it. Yeah, it's um, good, right? Amazing. It's a really cool. Yeah. He, amazing. He goes into great detail. Yeah, Rod's <laughs> awesome. Um, well, uh, basically, you know, for a few years, you know, three or four years, John and I had that apartment. Where we were just doing apartment recordings, um, and then unfortunately, that apartment flooded. Um, and I ended up moving out, but John stayed there. Um, Did you lose any gear? Uh, some, yeah. Luckily, uh, you know, there's a few guitar amps that I managed to fix. Luckily, most of the stuff, like, was on, was, we did remarkably well for... Sounds like a nightmare for... Yeah, and I, you know, <laughs> I was also, you know, I didn't have insurance, and right. I was just stupid. Um, and so I lost a bunch of stuff. Luckily, John had insurance, so he could replace some of his stuff. Um... But basically, I moved out and I had an apartment where I was doing recordings with, again, with bands and various people just in my apartment, you know, Road NT1 vocal mic and, you know, piano and guitar amps and stuff. Um, and then eventually I got a, like, rehearsal space studio, again, with some other band I was recording and working with and playing with. Um, and then eventually, you know, John and I started talking again about, and we were just like, he was kind of getting sick of having roommates in that apartment. You know, he was married and, or not quite married, but living with his girlfriend. And um, I was like, well, you know, would you be interested in just turning this into a studio? Because I'm really sick of having this rehearsal space where if a band's playing next door, I can't record. Mm -hmm. You know, you're sick of having roommates walking through recordings that you're doing in their bathrobes trying to go to the, to the, to take a shower <laughs> while you're trying to record a band in your apartment. Why don't we take that apartment and just turn it into a studio? He was into that idea. So basically, you know, we, we like, I think we like, bar, like sent out, like kind of like made our own sort of Kickstarter campaign mm -hmm. where we just sent out letters to people and we're like, do you want to like donate some money to us opening a studio? And we got like, you know, a thousand bucks or 2000 bucks or whatever. And basically like Bill ripped down a couple of walls, put down a couple of walls, turned his bedroom into the control room knocked down my old bedroom, left one bedroom as an ISO booth. And, you know, we started a studio. He had... Um, so no one was living there anymore. No, we just... kicked, you know, he kicked out his roommates. Yeah. Like, people were ready to move out. You know, our landlord didn't care what we did. Um, he was great. <clears throat> so that was the first bunker was this old basement um, apartment that we had. We'd had. Um, 
So, you know, it was very limited. Um, but, you know, we had tie lines to the rooms and we had isolation and we started recording. He had a, a sound, uh, Soundcraft, Soundcraft Ghost uh, console and he had some uh, Motu 2408 converter. So we had 24 channels. Um, at some point he bought a tape machine as well, a couple of tape machines. I had some microphones and instruments and guitar amps and some compressors and he had a few things. Um, you know, we both built up a small collection. I had some APIs and stuff like that. And so we just put it together and we had a studio and we started recording. I think he'd gotten like a, like a plate reverb as well. So we had like a small plate. Mm -hmm. And so we just started recording. And from the get go, you know, from the day we opened that studio, I think we had a session, like, you know, we were like wiring up the night before. We had a session the next day. And we were going, and from the from the day we opened that studio, it paid rent. It was awesome because wow. we were, we were cheap, but we were like priced right for the service we provided. But then the thing is that every month we had this thing where we didn't. If we had a good month, we didn't pay ourselves more. Mm. We just put it back into the business, so it always was reinvested, and we always were trying to make the better. Because what we cared about was being able to make records you know, and make good sounding records. And so we learned, um, you know, we, we were like, we really need this to make a better sounding record. So whether it's improving the converters or getting better monitors or putting up some more Owens Corning on the wall to make it sound better. Or, you know, after we were open for about a year, we're like, we really need another ISO booth. So then we walled off another chunk of the room and, you know, put in windows and just did everything ourselves. Mm -hmm. We built everything ourselves wow. and it, um, it was totally just like, you know, let's make records. What are we missing? Or, oh, I really want to buy this. Or I found a good deal on this compressor. Or, you know, oh, I found an RCA 44 on eBay, you know, and I got a great deal on it. So now we have a 44 so we can record trumpet, you know, and. Um, just like one piece at a time. One just... piece at a time. You know, I got, we like found somebody selling like a, a, a piano, a grand piano, like super cheap. So we like, I had, I had an upright piano that I brought to the studio and then all of a sudden we had a grand piano. So then all of a sudden we could do different types of records or people would come because we had a piano. Right. Um, you know, somebody wanted to leave a, that Hammond C2 with us. Right. That became part of the studio. So every time, you know, we got a new piece of gear, it opened up the possibilities of doing different types of records. And we got to just build, you know, we were just doing like indie rock records mostly, you know, like singer-songwriters, indie rock records, people, we were doing a lot of pr production as well. So, you know, it's somebody we knew would be like, I want to do a record, great, you know, well, let's come and do a record and I'll help you arrange it. And, you know, then you'd meet a singer and they'd be like, oh, well, I can, you know, I'm like, well, I can bring in a drummer and I can play bass and guitar, so it's going to be cheap. And, you know, so that's how we started doing it was just, you know, bringing people we knew in or people would hear about us. And it was all word of mouth. Mm. We never advertised. So it was just the, the thing of trying to do good work at the right price point so for your for your client base so you know the the clients were you know indie musicians like us you know it was just, they were the same as us and we were just building up along with them really i mean how, so, so for most of the part for mostly the music that you were recording was music you were into yeah Did i mean I, sometimes i mean also you know especially early and it, we would get, get some really weird records yeah. would come through but <laughs> You know, obviously we needed the money and we needed to just be working, so we would do anything, you know, that made sense. Yeah. 
So, and then, then in terms of um, moving to this place, yeah. So that was a that was a major step. It was still part of that kind of organic, piece by piece growth. Yeah, it felt I mean, like. it was definitely organic, but it was a major step. I mean, we the problem with that space was it was a basement apartment um, underneath the JMZ line. Hmm. So when the train went past, like if you were recording cello or yeah. vocals, sometimes you'd have to be like, wait a second. Okay, let's do a take now that the train's gone past. Yeah. Like if it was anything quiet, it was kind of problematic. Like voiceover work or something, yeah. I mean, mostly just like quiet music. Like, mm -hmm. you, know, I, you know, I remember just, especially with like strings or, or vocals, you would have to be like kind of careful how much like rumble you could allow right. into the, you know, like with drums, it didn't matter. And, mm -hmm. you know, most of the time with piano, you could get away with it. But it was kind of insane that we had a studio. Like, like literally like you could see the, you know, you could look up through the basement windows and see the train tracks. Mm. Um, so that was one big drawback of that space. And number two, the building was just pretty bad. So a couple of times we had to like leaks into the control room. And at that point we were just like, we have to get out of yeah. here. The building's getting worse. The building was kind of disgusting as well. So just bringing people down into this weird basement was just kind of like a little bit like, well, we're never going to be able to progress beyond this. You know, it was like weird. Like we did Black Keys single in there. We had like, you know, Danger Mouse. And, you know, we did some like cool stuff in that space. But, you know, those guys were just into, like, it was fine because they were into cool, cool, weird shit, I guess. And they were just like, oh, this is right. fine, you know. They dealt with it. But, you know, expecting to go further, we realized we needed, if we wanted to go further, we needed to get out of there. Mm -hmm. um, and so we were just getting really frustrated. And we started looking for a new space. And we just happened upon the current bunker space. A broker was like, yeah. uh, we looked at something else. And he, we were like, this is not going to work for us. And he was like, well, I have this other space in the neighborhood. Let me make a couple of calls and see if we can get access to it. And so we walked in and we were like, you know, it's almost 3,000 square feet. It's just empty. Basically, just a bunch of trash in is here. It an industrial space? It was an old sweatshop. I would never even imagine this kind of space It was a sewing factory. Wow. It was a sweatshop. Wow. Yeah, it was a Chinese sewing factory, Superman cutting and sewing. And they had moved out at some point, like a year or two before, and the space had just been sitting empty. Um, and so we were like, yeah, we want it. And we talked to the landlord and figured it out. And then we're like, whoa, this is, we don't know. Like, you know, we knew how to like throw up a couple of walls right. in, a, in a Brooklyn apartment, <laughs> but we didn't know how to structurally or acoustically design a room. It was so, you know, John bought Rod Gervais's book and yeah. we were like, well, if we read the book, we'll know how to build the studio. <laughs> and we read the book and we're like, let's just call Rod to design the studio because we don't know what we're doing. And so Rob was cool. He came down and saw the space and measured it. And it's like, okay. And then we went back and forth a bunch on the design. And we kind of thought about the sort of music we wanted to record and the things we didn't like about other studios. And um, it, you know, we were trying to build it from a player's perspective because we were players and we're like, okay, we were starting to record some jazz at our old studio. We want to be able to do more of that because we know a lot of people in the jazz world. Mm. We want to be able to provide something that people would be comfortable with and a layout that would be good for tracking live bands. And so we happened, we settled on the design. And anyway, long story short, about nine months later, we scraped through, you know, and opened with some friends. Like we had like five, five, six friends and some interns who helped us build. So we just did it all ourselves again. Just, you know, Rod gave us plans and we'd call him up when we didn't understand the, about the plans. And 
we just worked our, worked really really hard it's amazing and you know <laughs> a lot of sweat and a lot of terror you know trying to figure out how we could afford to do something that we had no idea what it would cost and um scraped it together through like family loans and and you know the other studio was continuing to work almost up until we opened the studio um and just made it and uh so we got open and again it was very basic and you know we brought our old console with us and we had barely any gear for the b-room um and you know but then again you know we just as we did records we were like okay after two three years we two years we can afford to put air conditioning and heat and we didn't have air conditioning we, we couldn't afford it right you know we didn't but have, it was designed it was built, it into was the built design. In design yeah but we just couldn't afford it so we just you know people sweat for the first year or they froze right but people were cool and we were cheap because we were like well it's not very good yet what year is this because when i came i don't remember uh, 2011. so they didn't have heat 2011. oh i remember being comfortable I yeah i mean if you came at the right time of year came okay january yeah February. You know, yeah, you know, we had like heaters. We had like, you know, okay. you know, coming early in the morning. I, I didn't notice. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And then next time I recorded, really, this is the first two thousand eleven. Yeah, it was two thousand eleven. Mm -hmm. It was it was January, February two thousand eleven. Must have been two thousand twelve. Oh, you weren't open to it. Yeah, we opened October two thousand eleven. Okay, okay. Yeah, fine. The, the January, so we were very. It was very new. Yeah, very raw. Um, and then by 2013, recorded here in July. Yeah, and we, we had all heat and AC and stuff. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we didn't have plumbing for the first month or two. We didn't have a toilet. We had to go to a little like this weird, disgusting lobby toilet because we couldn't find a plumber that would do it for a reasonable amount of money. It's like, so we just had to, you know, it's like all that stuff. Just you know. So I mean, I, I, so on one hand, obviously, it must have this whole journey. There was tons of besides work and, you know, and obstacles and um, un uncertainty. So to stay motivated through all that, obviously it helped help to have a partner that you really were working hand yeah. in hand with. That, that's amazing. Yeah. And that's not, um, you know, a given in, in, nah, in many situations. Cause, yeah. You know, partnerships aren't easy. I mean, when you're working with somebody, um, but that's great that that's been a fruitful partnership for so many years. But besides, besides that mutual support, what has been the motive your motivation in terms of overcoming mean, i'm sure there's there's been a lot of times like how am i how are we gonna get through get through this obstacle and especially financially and yeah. and you're you know in terms of also how um you know obviously you have other things going on in your life as well as you're not here 24 hours yeah. so you have you know um and you have your your uh you know relationships other yeah. things going yeah. on in terms of um having a life outside the studio yeah so um, or did you feel like this studio consumed all of, Absolutely. Your, all of your, yeah, I mean, you had some supportive people in your life outside the studio that, um, yeah, I mean, the, the motivation, like once we got to the, the current bunker build, the motivation was the fact that if we didn't finish it, we would have lost everything that mm. we had, like we'd signed a lease, we had spent every cent we had you know we just had to finish it like by you know calling up people and borrowing from friends and you know prepaying people prepaying you know right. it's just like we didn't have any choice to not finish did you see a vision of, of what the studio was going to look like in, in its later incarnation no we had no idea i mean the, the 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 one that i always remember is the architect when we were designing the control room 
trying to figure out how big to make it because he's like, well, you'll, will you ever put like a big console like an SSL in the control room? We're like, no way, our little 26 channel Autotronics is gonna be plenty. <laughs> you know, fast forward three years later, we have an SSL in the control room, you know, because that's what the, the business and the clients and the sort of music we were doing <laughs> required a bigger console. So we had no idea where it was gonna go, or what we'd be doing. Um, Wait, did he convince you to build it big enough to fit Luckily, yeah. we built it just big enough, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, you know, he he was smart enough that the design was a flex, has been flexible enough. We've wow. been with three consoles in in that room now, and like four or five consoles in in the B room. Um, you know, it's obviously things we would change now after, you know, eight years of being a studio, but luckily it's been flexible enough that we've been able to, to adjust as, as time has gone on. Um, but yeah, the motivator is just to have, like once you're in, you're in. Yeah. You know, you've signed a lease on a space, you have to pay rent every month. Yeah. So the first year, I mean, I didn't have a life outside the studio. Mm. Like, you know, John was touring a bit with with, uh, with Nerve, the band I work with now, but I used to work with them and I had to stop because I had to keep the studio running uh -huh. while he was on tour. You know, and if I went on vacation, you know, he had to be working. Um, and we didn't have a lot of stuff, so we were just here. So I was here like 28 days a month. Wow. Like certain months, especially in that first year and a half, were open. I I was working all the time. So how did you? Be, I know you. Um, in terms of, I mean, to ask you a personal question, yeah. one of the themes of this podcast is balancing life and music, yeah. and and the the degree in terms of my own experience, to which music can be obsessive, yeah, and in all of its its formats, and how that can be very challenging to having a healthy, especially healthy marriage, healthy yeah. long-term relationship with kids and the whole, mm -hmm. um, and that balance. So is that, what, is that something you've, you've come, come across? How have you resolved yeah. that challenge? I mean, I don't think it's resolved at all. <laughs> I mean, I just, I, I'm an obsessive workaholic kind of person. And luckily my wife is being understanding while frustrated, of course, at times. And you know, that first year, you know, it was really tough. We just got married. We got married like two months before we opened the studio. So in the middle of construction, we got married, hmm. which was insane. <laughs> Again, she did, you know, she did everything for our wedding and wow. we got through that. Luckily, it was a week that we were waiting for like the sprinkler guys to come in. So I had a little time to, for my wedding. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, I, you know, the first year and a half was, you know, over two years were really tough because I was just working all the time and it's long days. You know, it's like, you know, ostensibly a 10 hour day in the studio, but you get in an hour early and you mm -hmm. might get an hour late. It's a 12 hour day. You're, you're gonna come home and yeah. nine or 10 o'clock and be hungry and, and wanna eat and go to bed because you're doing the same thing the next day. It's not a lot of time for a relationship. Um, so it was tough, but you know, my, my wife was incredibly supportive and understanding. And I mean, one of the reasons, you know, I was, I married her and wanted to be with her is the fact that, you know, we're both creatives and I figured like a creative is gonna understand the creative drive. And so I was like, well, if I'm busy, at least you've got time to do your stuff that you wanna do. So, you know, that was kind of important for me that she would have her own source of creative outlets as well. Um, but I, I, I don't know there's a balance really still. I mean, you know, if I have, it's the freelance lifestyle. When work comes in, you take it. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I'm, I'm lucky to, to, to really enjoy what I do like a lot of the time. 
so I don't want to say no to stuff. Right. Um, and so I enjoy having a relationship as well, but I know I'm going to take the work because number one, I don't know when the next, you know, I want to get, get some, you know, I want to get the work in so we can pay the rent and I can pay the rent personally as well. Um, and you never know if there's going to be a slow month coming up next mm. month and you want to try to get ahead if you can get ahead. Um, and uh, if, you're, or if you're behind, you want to catch up. Is there a point where you feel like, because I, I look at this room and I think, you, you know, you could probably have guest engineers and, and be getting a passive income yeah. from this space. Has that eased up a little bit? Or, or do you see a goal point where you can kind of take a step back, take some more days off, let the studio earn for you? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I was getting there. Yeah. Um, so, you know, like 2017, we got it to a good place. We had a great staff. Like they were taking on a lot more sessions. I could go on vacation. I could go home. You know, I could take like a couple of weeks off and the studio would run itself. You know, the staff, like fantastic. Try, you know, you can just trust them to get it right and run sessions. And if there's a problem, they can take care of it or they can call me and I can help them take care of it whatever it is, you know, and obviously having a partner in the business, John, you know, then usually we're, somebody's around. I started touring like 2015, 2014 again with Nerve. And so John and I would go out on tour, both the owners would be gone and the studio would keep on running and paying rent. So it's great. And then we decided to take on this new space where we built a mastering room and a mixed room. And so we went through the same process of like nine months of building hell. <laughs> and, you know, we took on some new partners on the side of the business. So we'd have a bit more support. And that's been great because instead of just two people dealing with everything, it's six people like, you know, dealing with things. And so you can split up the workload a lot more. But the flip side of that is now I've got three rooms to work in instead of two. Mm -hmm. So before I could, you know, easily never take a day off. Now I can really easily never take a day off. There's always maintenance to do. There's, you know, more sessions coming in. Um, so I'm back a little bit to workaholic zone, but, you know, and you've, plus you've taken on another financial commitment of like, we've got to pay the rent on this side. So this side has got to work as well. So, um, you know, the balance has been skewed again. Like I was, you know, around 2017, I was like, oh, this is cool. You know, like life is getting pretty balanced. <laughs> you know, it definitely got there, but you know, I guess that's the, that's the balance of, that's the ride of life. Keep driving yeah. Forward. Yeah. yeah. And you know, it goes up and down too, yeah. you know, like, but the flip side is having built these rooms, uh, they're amazing sounding rooms. The architect's incredible. Um, did Roger Vase design these also? No, so we worked with this architect um, called Thomas Jean-Jean, who's got a company called Northwood Acoustics. Mm. And he's just like the guy for building perfect rooms. Um, he does tons of mastering rooms. He does like rooms for big electronic acts who have to hear like, you know, what it's going to sound like on a PA and like mm -hmm. you know, understand what's happening in the low end perfectly and all that sort of stuff. So we, uh, we got in touch with... Thomas and he, you know, we talked about designing these rooms and he came on board with that. And, you know, I wasn't, the whole time we were building these rooms, I was, this is a horrible, horrible build. I mean, there's so many things about his design. It's just terrible. Like there's so many layers in the walls that you do it over and over again for the, for the isolation and the treatment. And it's all incredibly specific and building down to the millimeter, you know, literally, you know, 
we were try trying to get every cut down to the millimeter mm. or half a millimeter tolerances in what we were doing to build these rooms. So they're incredibly exacting. Um, but the minute we heard music coming out of these speakers, we understood why we did it. Wow. And as, as somebody who wants to progress and become a better engineer, having a room to work in where you can hear what you were doing even more so than what you're used to. Like, you know, people, you know, come to work in Studio A and B and they're like, oh my God, you know, if I had speakers like this at home, you know, always hear that, you know, mm -hmm. it'd be amazing to be able to listen to music like the way we do. And then coming in here and being like, okay, and there's like, it's the next progression of a room um, in terms of the detail you hear in, in, a, in, a, in a room like this, you know, in a mastering level room. Um, so I know for all of us who work here, it's changed what we do in mm. terms of our perception of what's possible, what we're trying to do, what music actually sounds like, being able to listen to records and hear the detail on records that other people make. And, um, you know, it, it raises the bar for what we can do and what we're trying to do. How much time do you spend listening to um, other people's records, classic records? I mean, as much as I can... Just to hear the room Yeah, I mean, like, as much as Scott, I can do. That's what Scott Hall recommended. Yeah. So you spend time in your room just listening to things that you like, that, that see, you know, try to figure out how they did that. And, yep. That's yeah. exactly it. Just getting to know what music sounds like. Yeah. Like, the, the thing that I realized in this room is music sounds crazier than I thought. <laughs> like if you can really listen to what some people do on records like people do insane making like you know listen to a Bjork record and headphones or on really mm -hmm. great speakers and you're like wow okay that's what's going on or you know like obviously like you know I'm you know radiohead records with you know this the, the quality of recording and concept and performance and the sounds that like a band like that gets and the producer like that gets you know hearing that in a room like this or like listening to like an L Green record or you know any like old jazz record or like you know things sound crazy you know <laughs> and it's you know sometimes they sound crazy because people were working in like less than ideal conditions and they just make weird sounding records that sound insane but cool mm -hmm. or the performance is so good that it sounds really cool or you know there's something like you know a Bjork record where it's sculpted perfectly and it's crazy because she has a vision to make the most, you know, progressive, outstanding music as possible. Right. So then you're, you know, you're listening to, you know, you're hearing stuff that you've never heard in a room like this, and you're realizing the lengths people go to to make incredible sounding records and to to accomplish people's visions as well as artists. It's almost like you you get <clears throat> a, a much more accurate representation of what the original recording really. Yeah. It's because I'm thinking from where you're sitting, from, from where I'm sitting in terms of um, wanting just be to en engineer my own recordings. Yeah. Um, I see what what you've done in with building the studio, and I, and I and I it's been a, actually a process of like getting some guidance of trying to do too many things. Mm -hmm. And I and I've realized this come up a number of times when I've worked in studios, I've apprenticed in studios, and it's it's like. Um, I hit a certain point with engineering skills where it's like, well, my passion is really in, in the playing of the music. Yeah. But obviously, practically, and I, I mean, I do enjoy the, the process of engineering. I do enjoy the, I mean, there's so, there's so much overlap mm -hmm. between making music and the technical aspect. Um, <clears throat> but the idea of, of 
having a goal to get to a point where the the recordings are um, obviously you can you know always improving. Yeah. But for let's say in the culture now, when you have so many people who can who could have a laptop or whatever or mm -hmm. a small device <clears throat> and create entire albums, and many do. So what is there? Do you see like kind of a threshold where a person gets to where they they can feel confident that that they create music that's sonically representative of what they want to do um, if it sounds good to them or as, as I'm kind of learning I realize that something that sounds good to me <laughs> you know that is um, does that's not necessarily I need, you need other ears I mean at what point do you do you would you recommend or is that maybe that's the I mean I'm just answering my own question yeah. it's just about what you said before it's about having other ears yeah. on it well <clears throat> I mean I don't think there's a point that something's presentable like it's if the music is compelling, no matter how it's recorded, it'll be great. Like, number one, it's like, is it a great song? Is it a great singer? Is it a great performance? You know, like, I, like there's that band Dr. Dog. I don't know if you ever heard them, that Philly band that was, like, when we started out, like, in rock bands in, like, the, I don't know, 2000s, like, they were this, they, like, they were bubbling up as, a, like, a really cool Philly band. And, like, the first records are, like, four-track recordings or whatever mm. they are, and they're super lo-fi. And, you know, by no stretch of the imagination is it a great sounding recording, but those are awesome records. Mm. Uh, I mean, I listened to that stuff again recently and I was like blown away by how good it is. It's like the singing's out of tune and the guitars aren't, you know, and like the drums are, you know, probably a, you know, a couple of mics, like a 57 in the kick and an overhead or whatever it is, it doesn't matter because the music is kick ass, wow. you know? So like, it doesn't really matter. All the stuff doesn't matter. The, the most important thing is like, is it in service of like the song and the music? And certain music has to be shiny and beautiful. Like if you're making a pop record, you know, then it has to be sound huge. And when it gets to the chorus, it has to like explode. And mm -hmm. the low end has to, you know, make the subwoofers jump out of the, you know, out of the room if it's in a club. Mm -hmm. um, or if it's a singer-songwriter thing and, you know, they're playing acoustic guitar and singing and they want you to capture the minimal thing. You know, maybe it's great that it just sounds like they're playing in their bedroom. Or maybe it's amazing that it's recorded beautifully and the, you know, the singer is right up in your face and, you know, you can imagine, like, you can hear every breath. Mm -hmm. um, there's just so many ways to go about it. And that one's right. Right, so I get obviously... You know, we're talking about artistic things, and, and it's a lot subjective. I guess what, where is the distinction between subjective recordings, let's say subjective music, that how you're responding to it, how you're from a artistic standpoint, yeah, um, how the artist feels about it, how, and w what's kind of a little bit more maybe objectively well-engineered, well-made records. What what is the point where be to say like, okay, I can I can kind of let the and worrying a bit too much about that engineering go and just fo focus on making music, which I, I guess for me is really the goal. Yeah. It's like... I mean, that's the ideal. Yeah. Like, I mean, really, that's why for a long time there was an A&R person who found songs for mm -hmm. the artist and there was a producer who, like, put the band together and, there, you know, there was a label that paid for it and the artist could just be an artist. Right. And, you know, that's why, you know, there's so many great records from the 60s and the 70s and the 80s where, like, the songs are killing and the performances mm -hmm. are amazing. And, you know, and then you get to the self-produced artists, you know, and, you know, like a Elliot Smith record. Elliot Smith? 
Yeah, right? Anyway, I think so. Um, you know, like his four track, again, you know, lo-fi home, you know, there's magic to that stuff mm -hmm. as well. Um, and sometimes, you know, and you look at some of his later records where in the studio, some of the magic got lost, you know, certain people, it works to be lo-fi and it works to be, you know, intimate and it works to not sound, you know, air quotes, great. But, you know, for a lot of people, it's probably better to, for it to sound good. Mm -hmm. You know, like, I can hear in my mix room what you can't. Mm -hmm. In anybody's room, right. you like I can hear in this room better than what everybody else can hear, and the reason to do that is I can hear all the details and make decisions, so it will translate great at home or on earbuds or whatever it is, and that's the whole point of having a great environment to work in and the experience of doing it. And I'm not saying I'm going to do the best job of mixing every song ever, but. I can probably do a better job of than most home recorders just because I have more experience. Well, yeah. You know, well, it's almost like, like you know, a, a, let's say a painter who's painting a giant canvas. I mean, thinking yeah. about this image, and they they get down into the, all the little details, and then when maybe the the photograph of that painting is a much less high resolution. Yeah. But the fact that that the painter could get into the, the extreme detail. Even though you don't see that extreme, mm -hmm. most average, uh, you know, you observers might miss that. Yeah, yeah. might miss it, but it's still it's still somehow uh, contributing to the effect of it. And yeah, it adds to your emotional impact. I mean, it's like you know you're doing a pop thing, and like you know maybe there's like you know the drums are like band passed in the beginning. You know, like a really obvious example, mm -hmm. and the average listener isn't going to be like, oh my god, like you know the drums got bigger in the chorus or whatever, but they feel the emotional impact of like oh, things got more exciting. Right. You know, like whatever it is, like whatever tricks and tools you have yeah. as, a, as an engineer, as a mixer to make like, oh, so the vocals are really dry on the verse and intimate, but then in the chorus, three delays come in and a reverb comes right. in. And like you have all these tools in your tool belt, but only in service of emotional impact. Right. So that, so that, that makes sense. You think about it, uh, like let's say an average listener and their experience. It's almost like, do you, do you spend time thinking about that? Well, In, yeah, I mean, you try to be the average listener. Right, right. As right. you're doing it, like you're trying to be the technical like person putting it together, like you're the mechanic, you know, putting the car engine together, mm. but you're also the guy driving the car. Right. And so you want to be like, the, like, to be able to like take a step back and, you know, that's why we have, you know, also, you know, we have these super hi-fi speakers, but then we have small speakers that sound like a computer. Mm -hmm. So then, you know, once you're done mixing on the big speakers, you put them on the small speakers and be like, does that move me mm -hmm. in the same way as like, allow, right. you know, you can't, you know, you're trying not to fool yourself. Yeah. And the whole time you're just trying to see like, what can I do to make it exciting? What can I do to move, move the artist in the room? And you know, are they excited about the song now? And uh, am I excited about the song? And mm -hmm. when I put it in Dropbox and listen to it on my phone, you know, does that jump out of the speakers? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, is, is it happening? Right, right. You know, and so yeah. that's your aim the whole time is, you know, you're, you're, you're really, and the more, the longer I do it, the more I understand that that's what I'm aiming for. And I have more tools to get there and, you know, maybe, a lot of the time I'm thinking about, well, why is this kick drum flabby and it's not punching and, oh, this bass is too much or like on certain notes, the bass is sticking. I mean, I'm thinking about all that stuff. Mm -hmm. But in the end, hopefully I can stop thinking about that stuff once, you know, if, you know, if things aren't perfect in the tracking or, you know, I'm trying to design a sound that 
has a certain impact or make a synth sound work with this or that or whatever it is, in the end, hopefully you just put that stuff away and the kick drum is just the kick drum mm -hmm. and you can forget about it. Right. But it's moving the speakers in the right way and it's making the song move in the right way and it's making the people in the room move in the right way. So you do what you get down to like the the micro and then you know and then mm -hmm. you can move up to the macro. Right. And so, you know, I might be like stressing out about a snare drum ringing or like, oh, it doesn't smack or whatever it is. Like you're thinking about that stuff. And that's, I guess, the thing is like having the tools to deal with all those stupid little things mm -hmm. that aren't perfect. Right. So they don't distract from when you pull back. So then you can the forget camera. about them. Yeah. Like you want to just forget about all the problems you have yeah. at the beginning of the mix to get to the place where it just feels good at the end, where you, like none of that stuff matters. You just think about the singer. So I guess so, so as an objective engineer, I can imagine that's, you know, you're, that you're, you're, that's your job or producer engineer. That's your job to worry about all those things so that really the artist doesn't have to. And I guess that's one yeah. of the luxuries of coming and hiring you know, a studio and an engineer, you know, yeah. producer like you. Um, before, and I, but I imagine you've spent, you also have spent time engineering your own recordings, your yeah. own music that's closest to your heart. That, do you find that's much more challenging to, to, to have that objectivity or, or because of your experience? Yeah, you, I mean, I, I definitely, um, I have this one project that I, I do now um, with the singer Jackie Ryle and the project's called Ryle. Mm -hmm. And it's really fun because it's, it's um, a collaborative project and I get to like write weird electronic tracks and I have a good time with that stuff. Um, and the last record I, we spent like, you know, quite a lot of time working on it. And at the end I was like, I just don't want to mix this. I want somebody else's perspective mm -hmm. to see if I got it right. Mm -hmm. And so I asked John to mix it. And so John mixed most of that record. You know, I was there in the room with him and, you know, kind of co-mixing, producing, whatever you want to call it. Um, and it was really helpful to have somebody else just be like, mm. yeah, this, you know, that clap's cool, but it's not really kicking ass. Or like, man, dude, you're really missing some, some high end here. Maybe we need to like put some white noise or, you know, like just having another perspective. That's why collaboration is great, yeah, right? Yeah, so that, that's what I'm getting, one of the themes that I'm yeah. getting, you know. Yeah, so... I, I do, sometimes I do want other people's perspective and sometimes I don't, you know, right. that's you yeah, know, the, the flip side of collaboration. Yeah, like, <laughs> you know, like I did just did this electronic, weird electronic record where I collaborated on the music with people, but I didn't need anybody else to tell me how to mix it. Mm -hmm. Like, I was like, I know what I want to do. Let me just go in and do it. Like, it's, it's going to be cool. Whatever comes out is going to be cool. I'll just make it sound as good as I can. And I was happy with that, how that turned out as well. Um, I think it's just that thing of sometimes you know you just aren't quite sure and so you either play a track for somebody and be like what do you think of this arrangement or mm. i mean the whole thing is having people you trust mm -hmm. again we just come back to the same thing and like you know if i'm not sure of a track or if i want to like just be like hey i made this track what do you think and if somebody's like that's banging that's really cool or yeah it's okay right. you know like you want to know if like it, somebody yeah. gets excited about it um and you know you have to trust yourself if yeah. you love it then you love it and you're going to finish it and do whatever you want with it but um i i i think the most exciting and funnest part of being a musician is the collaborative process mm. and you know even though I, most of my gig is an engineer these days i still f approach it as a musician you know i'm not like here to tell you that I know exactly what the mix should sound like. I'm here to work with you to get it where you want it to be. Mm. You know, and sometimes I'll like disagree with an artist's choice, um, you know, but I'll try to 
see it through to their vision because in the end it's their their name on it and their vision and you know and a lot of time i can i might try something and they're like no i really hear it this way and they're right a lot of the time as well like it's like oh okay or like or it's just a different perspective mm -hmm. it doesn't really matter like there's a million ways to to to, to do it and so I'm like, I think it should be like this. And they're like, no, I really think it should be like this. And I'm like, okay, let me make your thing work. And then you hear it and you're like, I love it. Or I make it, I make it work. So I love it as well as them. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the fun thing too, is like, you know, when somebody's like, eh, you know, like I get a reverb up and I'm like, this is killing. And they're like, oh, I really want it to be dry, you know? And I'm like, yeah. okay, well, I, I had it working, you know, let's, you know, you have the time constraints as well of like, right. Like I had a, I had figured it out, and then, uh, you know. But then you're like, okay, well, I have to figure it out another way now, you know. Or, or like, like I don't like, like the way that's panned. And you're like, oh, well, that kind of got that out of the way of that. Now I have to cue things differently, or whatever it is. Again, you get back down to the micro levels, but then you figure it out. Maybe you learn something from it. Like you have to use a new technique, or you just hear it through their ears and you're like, oh, okay, I get what you're looking for. You know, so that's all, that's the fun of it. Yeah. You know, that's what's cool about doing this stuff. So on that, on that note, so I'd love to ask you, I, know, I don't want to be respectful of your time and yeah. you've been very generous with it. Um, but I just want to ask you about a couple, couple more things. Okay. Sure, yeah. Um, about your experience with Nerve, because uh -huh. that's a unique, very unique, because you're sort of a member of the band. Yeah. And you're sort of, your traditional role of, of a the sound engineer for the yeah. band, but then at the same time you're musically collaborating with the band. Yeah. Um, you know, I've heard referred to it, it's a trio, but then yeah. you're you're there, so like you're part of it. Yeah. The, what is it? The live audio deconstruction. Yeah, yeah. I don't like that phrase. Uh, <laughs> that's an old. That's a leftover phrase from JoJo's and like uh, initial uh, collaborative process with mm -hmm. another engineer. I mean, the thing I like about that again, it comes from JoJo's concept that. Um, that style of music is not a, just a musician's music. It's a collaboration. And that music comes from producers, mm -hmm. right? So like drum and bass comes from a guy in a room chopping up drum samples. Um, and electronic music is usually a guy setting sound designing mm -hmm. and making tracks. It's not people playing it live. So I think JoJo's original concept and his collaborator, Roly Mossaman, um, in the early days and for a long time, um, came up with the idea that, you know, the sound guy is just as important as the musician because that's the experience is being determined by the sound guy, mm -hmm. not just the musician. So, you know, Rolly developed this whole thing where, you know, he would do the audio deconstruction thing where he would like, you know, treat the band as just source material <laughs> and he would do his thing with them. And so when I started working with Nerve just to do to like, you know, the fact I was in New York and Rolly was in Europe, um, you know, I, I kind of, Hadn't never actually got to see the band live with Roly, but you know I'd heard about it for years and years from John, <clears throat> and I'd obviously heard the records, um, and you know so you know Nerve started doing records in our old studio, and I got to know what the music was like, blah blah blah, um, you know, and then I started working with them more regularly, you know, in the last five years, and you know I, I have really become a part of the band in a way that I never really thought would be uh possible for somebody who's like the front of house guy mm -hmm. and it's it's hard to explain to people <laughs> what i do in a way because like they're like oh you tour with nerve what do you play guitar and i'm like no i i'm actually front of house but i can do whatever i want with the music 
So you you have license to. So I, so I see your equipment. I've seen some of the videos. Yeah. Um, the one thing that I noticed because there was not, I didn't see such lingering yeah. shots on your equipment, but there was one kind of a red. Yeah, the chaos light. pad. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So what is that? That that's basically processing the entire. Well, I mean, it's it's just like music working or sections of it. I, I can just take any element of the band and process it. Basically, mm -hmm. is the short answer. Is I have we travel with our own console. I can send any element of anybody to any of my effects. Um, so it's just interactive. Basically, I can do stuff, and then they can hear what I do. Mm -hmm. So it interacts. So maybe I'll take the drums and I'll distort them or I'll take Jacob's keyboards and I'll sample them into the chaos pad like mm. live and uh -huh. then play it back. So then I can take over playing a part that he's been playing oh, wow. and he can play other stuff. Yeah. Or I can take a part and like we can have a conversation where he'll play like do 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 and I go like you know I can take whatever people are doing and play it back to them. So how so a lot of it's improvisation, but I guess yeah. you have to, some of that you must have to plan at least at least structurally. Like he has to know that you're going to loop one of his keyboard parts. He, he's going to be <laughs> no, he doesn't. But that's the thing, no. he doesn't. He doesn't. Okay. Like he doesn't, but he hears it, mm -hmm. and he can either respond to it or ignore it. Right. You know, but I'm going to do what I'm going to do. He's right. going to do what he's going to do, and we're going to make the music. Yeah. And that's the same thing as like comes from jazz. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you know, and I'll take JoJo's drums and I'll put a delay, like a yeah. you know, dotted eighth note delay, maybe on the hi hats. Or like, you know, build a 16th note delay off the snare drum and it will just build up a whole sonic world that wasn't there before. And then they will, ha they have to respond to what I do if they can hear it. Right. Because I'm doing a lot sometimes. Right. And so I can build up a whole sort of experience for the listener that you can't do with just three people playing sure. on stage because they're busy playing. Yeah. They don't have hands free to like decide to do this and then do this mm -hmm. and bring it back and forth and... So it's just to make it a more interesting listening experience is yeah. the basic thing. And again, like emotional, I can, I can build waves of sound to build up to peaks to make whatever they're doing enhance the way that I would do it when I'm mixing. Yeah. So if I want like massive reverbs building up, building up to a peak yeah. and then like it drops out to four on the floor wow. groove. Um, that's kind of the concept for live is I can really design the experience for the listener. And more. you're given that license. There's no parameters that you're no, saying. I'm a hundred percent part of the, yeah, I'm music, part of the band. Yeah. I'm not like hired by the band to right, be the no, front house guy. No, right. but that's, but that's also the role. Well, also cause well, I just say, cause in, in, in that documentary, he, he, he's playing with John at this, like he calls it hippie festival. Yeah. 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 And he says, we're, we're playing as a duo today. Yeah, so I yeah. thought that was interesting. It's just like, that's the... Yeah, because the, the, there are two people on stage. Yeah, exactly. So it's an interesting role, because it's not... It's hard maybe, for people yeah. to understand, and even it's hard for right, us to articulate. If we're playing as a trio, people would be like, yeah. what is he? He's, yeah. he's, he's imagining. No, that's the funny thing. And, yeah. you know, Jojo always announces from stage, yeah. you know, he announces all four of us right. as part of the band, but still people, you know, half the time people taking photos and getting autographs, they don't right. know who I am, because they don't see me on stage. But it's... But it's fine because my role is is it's a very fun, unique role in that band, and um, everything. And I've learned so much from doing that that I've brought back into my mixing and my engineering as mm. well. Because I've realized how um, interactive things can be sonically, and uh, how uh, how much life you can bring to a, an experience, be it a mix or a live sound mix with just really interacting with the music. So, mm. you know, now I'll do like chaos pad passes on a track and, you know, on the vocals and print that and, and then yeah. be able to mix that in. And I do that more and more um, because that just brings a sense of life to, to, to certain recordings that I've, I've done.
Um, so there's, that's definitely like the back and forth between live and, and studio that I've always felt and, and what I've done has been um, really cool. I always learn stuff from doing live stuff that translates back to the studio. So I also see a parallel also to that kind of humility of you're not out front in the music. You're, you're, you're behind the music in so yeah. many ways. And is that something that you've thought about or, and, and, and it's a conscious decision? Like, I'm not going to put myself... Like, I don't want to be a front man. I want to be the, the guy, you know, on well, the I'm poster. Well, I'm not a singer. I'm like, I'm not a front man. I've well, always but, played but guitar Damien, bands. what's and, yeah. his name? Um, uh, Mouse, uh, Dead Mouse. Oh, Dead you know, Mouse. He's not a singer either. Yeah. Right? Well, that's he, like DJ Colch. That's a whole other okay. thing. Yeah. yeah you could put on a giant mask and, yeah. <laughs> and you have the skills to do it, I'm sure. I mean, really, like... It's... But, you, but you don't put yourself up there as like the, the, the guy, the artist... Which is interesting, which which I don't think there's anything. I mean, yeah. in fact, I, I admire that yeah. because you you're you're able to be in some ways much more part of a lot more music by not being having a, a fixed identity of this. I'm. Um, I mean, you are an artist, yeah. obviously, with your own work, but like that this is I'm the the artist doing my thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I'm not that person. Yeah. I, I like doing a salsa record one day and yeah. then an electronic track the next day and then working with a singer songwriter. Like that's. You kind fun. of found your groove yeah, I love in the, the musical world. Yeah, and, yeah, I love the variation. You know, yeah. it's that's that the variety is for me what's exciting. If I was just singing my own music, that would be great, and I would probably love it. But what I've found has worked for me is is dipping into like you know doing a straight ahead jazz record one day is is just as exciting as you know writing a film score. Right, and you know that's that's what's fun. Like it keeps it. If I was doing just straight ahead jazz every day of the week, I would go crazy. Right. You know, because it would just be the same thing, same thing, same thing. You know, I love the variety and, and what I get to do. And I'm, I feel lucky to go on tour and like refresh myself so I can come back to the studio yeah. and be excited about that. Um, and you know, and there's like, in, in a weird way, there's an incredible sense of power as um, an engineer and as a, like a front of house engineer, especially with a band like Nerve. I'm like running sound on these huge PAs mm -hmm. that just I can blow people out of the water. <laughs> I can make it terrifying. Right. You know, I can like scare the audience. I can excite the audience. Right. You know, even though I'm the guy in the back of the room, I'm kind of yeah. like pulling the levers in some ways. And that's just like... Like Wizard of Oz. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah, it's really <laughs> fun to like watch people like be able to manipulate an experience. Yeah. And that's what you're aiming to do when you mix reaction, it. Yeah, yeah, and you're aiming to do that when you're mixing. Yeah. We we're talking about like the emotional impact of like, yeah. you know, you want to make people like smile when it hits the chorus, mm. right? You want to like like make them mm -hmm. jump up and want to dance or whatever it is. Yeah, you know, like doing the salsa record the last few days. It's like we had people dancing in the control room because they were excited about the way the music felt like yeah. felt the way it was coming out of the speakers. And you're like, this is really cool. Yeah, like to be able to do this to make people feel something. Mm. So, you know, it's like, you know, obviously a, a, a great singer on stage is going to make people feel something in a different way. And that's an incredible skill I'll never have. But I found a way to, to do that that makes me really happy. And hopefully the people I work with are really mm. happy because they feel what they want to feel from, from their music as well. Yeah. I mean, it's all the same thing. It's all just making people feel a thing. Yeah. You know, however, you, however you can do it. Well, it does. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you, you do. Yeah. You know, and it's, you know, the, the, work that, that uh, we've done here, you know, um, Brooklyn Jazz Warriors, my own music, mm -hmm. has been, so it's just, it's just a pleasure. And, yeah. I've, and I've 
had experience with a, lot, <laughs> a number of different studios where it wasn't like that. Yeah. And I, and I really appreciate your attitude. I really appreciate you taking this time. Um, I'm sure there's a million more things I can ask you, but I want yeah, to. I, I can talk forever as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, well, well, we'll have we we'll have time to, to mix. Exactly. I'm looking forward to it. Me too. Yeah. Um, so, I, I, Aaron, I really, I really thank you. Pleasure. And uh, yeah, good luck with everything with the new the new space. Thank you. And should have a uh, not only tons of of work to do and and, and fulfilling work. But also be able to take some time. Exactly. That's the <laughs> I end. know you have. I noticed in a couple of videos you have this incredible modular system. Is that your home? Yeah, I'm kind of obsessed with modular synths now. So that's my hobby. <laughs> so is to go home and make music. <laughs> I know my wife thinks I'm crazy. She's like the bleeps and bloops. That's enough. Yeah. I love it. I love yeah. that music. I just it, yeah. it blows my mind that you have this whole playground over here of music, and then yeah. you come home and you have a whole other playground. Yeah, I, I look forward to getting home to to uh, to have a day off to like and uh, I can manipulate sound in a different way. Yeah. Well, keep, yeah. keep, keep making music. Thanks, Josh. Keep enjoying. Thank you. Okay, awesome. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed it. I um, wanted to thank Aaron again for taking the time to speak with us and for sharing so much of his experience and knowledge. I'll link to his website in the show notes as well as the website of his studio, the Bunker Studio, and the band Nerve, which we talked about in an interview, which he's in with Jojo Mayer and John Davis. He has a unique role as a front of house engineer and sound manipulator. On Nerve's website, there's a cool documentary which gives a pretty good idea of what Nerve's about, where Jojo Mayer is coming from, and what Aaron's role is in the band. Please be in touch. We'd love to hear from you all. Any thoughts? about these sessions, any questions. I welcome the continued discussion about these topics and other topics, things we can bring up, guests we can approach. Uh, so you write to soundheightsrecords at gmail.com for that purpose. Also go to soundheightsrecords.com to sign up for our mailing list. There you can find also uh, the Brooklyn Jazz Warriors music, um, a lot of the unreleased tracks that you can get as a patron of Sound Heights Records, supporting this podcast and our music releases. If you get a moment, if you could also go over to iTunes and leave us a review, that would be really helpful. In the meantime, keep playing and creating, and remember that with abundant playing and singing of music, we bring about the true and complete redemption. See you next time.